Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians, so you can turn with us there to Ephesians. We're going to be reading Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to Ephesians 5, 16. Starting in verse 25, this is what Holy Scripture says. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for if anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, please uh, take your Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter 2, if you would. Ephesians chapter 2. The term born again is a, uh, an expression the Bible uses, Jesus himself used it, to describe what happens to a person when they become a Christian. They are born again a second time. And just like a newborn baby, 
these new Christians have to learn how to live, how to speak, and how to act as new people. When God saves a person, he starts this process of growth, this process of change, what we would call sanctification. People that who, uh, people who have been chosen by God, loved by God, saved by God, these are new people. They're created by God, and now they are empowered by God to live new lives. This morning, I'm going to call you to seven of those good behaviors every Christian should be doing. But I want to be clear right from the very start that we do not do these things in order to get saved. Rather, we do them because we are saved. God saves us, and out of this work of God, out of this changed heart, we begin to live a new life. Let me show it to you here in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 8. It might be very familiar to you if you've been a Christian for a long time because this is a precious truth for Christians. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This getting saved was not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So salvation is not the result of pleasing God by doing a lot of good things. That's ruled out. For we, he continues, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Short version of that is you're not saved by the things you do, but when God saves you, he has prepared for you a bunch of good things for you to do that are all empowered by him and by his grace and by his strength so he gets all the glory and you get to participate in the work of God in the world. Many of you will know Brian Russell. Brian is a former member of our church. He's now on staff at Living Hope Church in Georgetown. Well, One Sunday, Brian showed up, and I showed up, and we were talking with each other before the service began when it suddenly dawned on us that we were dressed like twins. I mean, right down to the same label of shirt. Like, it was identical. The only thing that was different between me and Brian is he's like 5'3". I don't know how tall. Sorry, Brian. I don't remember how tall you are. Uh, But he's smaller than me. So there we were. And this is just one of these things you cannot unsee after you have seen. He was like my little mini-me. We were even follically challenged in similar ways. And since he was going to be leading the singing and I was going to be doing the preaching that Sunday, it appeared like Brian and I were in the official Grace Fellowship Church uniform. You know, there is one sense in which all of us should look alike. Not with, our, not with our literal clothes, not with the things we wear, but the actions that adorn our lives. Uh, to use Paul's metaphor here, we're given a new wardrobe the moment God saves us. Uh, you've got a new walk-in closet, and it's your responsibility to get in there and pull out those clothes and wear them. So now we go to Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 22. So God's done this work of saving his people. Now he says, here's your new wardrobe. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what Paul's saying here, and that we've been looking at the last several weeks, 
is we're to be getting our minds renewed all the time by God's Word. That's verse 23. And, and we want this to happen so that we can complete the wardrobe change by putting off sinful behaviors, that's verse 22, and replacing them by putting on righteous behaviors, that's verse 24. So the Christian life is this. Understand your new identity and then live in line with that identity by God's grace. Or, as we like to say, become what you are. Become what you are. Now, I took two Sundays, maybe even three, to plaster you with prohibitions, explaining to you these are the clothes of the old you that have to be taken off, the actions that don't fit anymore because now you are a Christian. Look, I had some old t-shirts I really liked. By old, we're talking like in the 20 to 30 year range. And finally, my dear wife showed me that these things were old <laughs> and they were torn, that they were stained. But I would say, well, they just, they're so comfortable. They just feel so good. Well, just because something fits and feels comfortable does not mean that you should keep it. And no matter how easy these behaviors of the old person feel, you've got to bury them in the grave with the old you. So we saw the sins of falsehood, stealing, sinful anger, bad words, being a contentious kind of person, the sins of sexual immorality, and the sins of sexually perverse speech. God looks at us and says, that's, that goes in the, you know, what, the bin that's going to Value Village. That goes in there. Here's the new wardrobe I've given you. Wear these clothes. We say, okay, great, thank you. That's easy. Just take off the old things, put on the new. Easy, right? I'm looking for anybody who's nodding. <laughs> no, it's not particularly easy. But then it is particularly easy. I mean, nobody is forcing you to tell a dirty joke. Nobody is making you lie. Nobody's taking your hand and forcing you to steal that bagel when the Starbucks lady isn't looking. And yet we know in every one of those situations, there might be this huge, fierce, internal fight taking place, a battle. What's that battle? Well, when we stop one action, we create something like a vacuum, a space that is just dying to be filled with something. And that is why for everything Paul prohibits, he gives a replacement imperative. It is not good enough just to remove the bad action. It has to be replaced with the good. For example, when he prohibits stealing, he gives the imperative, get a job and earn money so that you can give and be generous. It's a little bit like you when you're staging your house when you're getting ready to sell it. You take all the stuff in your house and, 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 and you, you take it to the, you know, storage place, just all your junk, you just put it in, the, and then you have all your nice, pristine, and it all looks like nice and clean and everything. It's beautiful. But let's say your house doesn't sell. You haven't really dealt with the problem, have you? Because if your house doesn't sell, you got to bring all that stuff back out of storage, and now it's all banged and clattered and dusty and dirty, and the latter state of that house will be worse than the first. It is not enough to only stop a bunch of bad behaviors. You have to start a bunch of good behaviors. 
You've got to replace the bad with some good, or the bad just comes back with his friends. So today, that's what we're looking at, the replacement behaviors, the actions that every single one of us needs to be pursuing, the heavenly wardrobe of every single earthly follower of Jesus. It's what we get to do, in fact, in the power of God. And while all of us need to do all of these things, there's one sense where I think one or maybe two or three of these things are going to be a particular challenge for you. And I would urge you, in fact, I would challenge you to choose that one, choose that two or three, and really focus on this in your own spiritual growth in the coming months. What are the seven articles of Christian clothing and the Christian uniform? Here they are. Speak truth to people. Deal quickly with relational tensions. Get a job, work hard, and earn to give. Fourthly, say encouraging things to people. Extend relational credit to others. Give up your life and love and express your gratitude. They're all there in your song sheet if you want them. Let's look at them briefly, each one. First of all, speak the truth to people. This is verse 25 of chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, I think the first thing I want you to see here is that almost every one of these commands comes with a reason, a rationale. In this case, speak the truth to each other. Why? Because for we are all members one of another. So the reason that you must be truthful is grounded in your spiritual union with other people that Jesus has saved. And knowing that reason is helpful, isn't it? It helps you understand why you should be truthful. It makes you want to be truthful. It makes you want to obey. Parents, it is always helpful when you can explain to your children why you would like them to do something. Some children may even ask that question occasionally. <laughs> now, children, you can ask that question the right way, and you can ask it the wrong way. Here's the wrong way. Dad says, you know, clean your room. He says, why? That's, that's not the good way. But you may want to say, yeah, Dad, I'm going to clean my room, but I would just like to posit the question. Posit is a word you can learn from your pastor. I would like to posit the question. Could you explain to me why we have to keep our rooms cleaned? He can give you the rationale why, and that might help you obey. Well, Paul's doing the same thing here. He's giving you the rationale why. And this first rationale, this first reason is really important to keep in mind, keep in mind for this command, but actually for all the commands. And Paul says it's like we, we all have the same spiritual DNA. We are all members of one another. So we've got to keep that in mind as we progress through this passage. He's saying here that people who are intangibly and yet vitally connected they need to speak truth to one another, which means every lie is a dagger to the body of Christ. And words of truth are a fit cure. I'll be honest with you. I think that honesty is difficult. I think it's difficult to stay honest. Sometimes it's just really hard to know what you actually think about something. You're in a conversation with somebody and they want to know what you think about this. And you, just, you can't get your, your, own, your own thoughts straight. I mean, the heart is deceitful above all else. You can't even really know what you think. And often it's, it's very difficult to, to communicate your, your most honest thoughts with clear words. We struggle with communication and how to, how to say and express what we're really thinking. Besides that, being honest can be risky. Because if I'm honest with you, I may offend you. 
And not only that, we're immersed in this world of lies. Fake news didn't start a couple of years ago, friends. Fake news started in the Garden of Eden when the Satan whispered into the ear of Eve. But Christians, Christians ought to stand out from the world by their honesty, their personal honesty. Can you commit to tell the truth? Can you commit to speaking the truth, to avoiding every bit of spin or exaggeration or deception or falsehood, every untruth? And can you commit to do that with all your fellow members here? Speak the truth. Speak the truth to people. That's article of clothing number one. Here's number two. Deal quickly with relational tensions. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul, you wouldn't necessarily see it in the English translation here, but he uses two different words for anger. And so to overstate it, to overemphasize it, we might translate this verse like this. Be full of wrath and do not sin. Do not let the sun set on your violent expressions of anger. Something like that. And so whatever Paul is doing here, he seems to be teaching us that that there's a kind of anger that has to stop by bedtime. Now, you can be a little too literalistic with this. (laughs) If you took your summer vacation in Norway last month, you could have remained sinlessly angry for about two months because in uh, Svalbard, Norway, between April and August, the sun never sets. It just comes down and loops back up again. You say, I don't have to. You know, the sun has not set. No, that's not what Paul is getting at here, right? So you don't need to be, you don't need to force something here. What's he saying here? He's saying as far as it depends on you, quell your anger quickly, as soon as you can. I don't think that means that you have to solve every dispute before dusk. Some disputes, they take a long time to figure out, but you can kill your anger tonight and work on your dispute tomorrow. The idea is don't let the anger carry on. When a Christian wife is putting off the old and putting on the new, it would never cross her mind to give her husband the silent treatment for days and days and days. When a Christian husband is putting off the old and putting on the new, he would never keep the fire of his anger ablaze for hours and days and days, whatever the offense is. When you're a Christian Think of this. God gives you his own Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, and he gives you the Spirit in order to empower you to live differently from the people on so-called reality television or differently from your family of origin or differently from the rest of the world. That means that you as a Christian must live with a kind of willingness to enter into the disputes that arise in life all with an aim to resolving them. I feel really angry right now. I'm not going to let that anger control me. I'm going to move towards you to try and solve the dispute. Anger is almost always the result of a blocked goal. You want something, you can't get it, or you want somebody to act a certain way towards you and they won't, and you get angry. And beloved, the anger is not love. Rather, it's an attempt by you to try and force the people who are bothering you to act the way you want. Anger most often is a control tactic. 
And anger like this is not resolving a conflict. It's trying to manipulate an outcome. That doesn't work in a marriage. That doesn't work in a friendship. That doesn't work in a church membership. God would have us move toward one another in our conflicts, seeking to understand each other and grow in our love for one another because we are part of one body and all of this with our anger under control. Cancer is a term that describes when cells in your own body uh, misbehave. They begin to grow uncontrollably and spread to other parts of your body and form tumors, and malignant tumors can lead to death. When Christians let anger remain unresolved between them and another Christian, they're functioning like a cancer cell in the body. They're spreading the disease of disunity. But repentance and reunification of brothers and sisters in the Lord, that works better than chemotherapy and radiation combined. A full restoration between brothers and sisters is available because we can repent of our sins, the things we're responsible for, and we can forgive the person who repents and asks for our forgiveness. We can be not just restored, but fully restored. When you stay angry, it's like you're rejecting the cure for cancer. Brothers and sisters, deal quickly with your relational tensions. Don't let the devil stick his nose in your relationships. Number three, get a job, work hard, and earn in order to give. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Look, it is really important to stop stealing. We've already looked at that. But if you don't fill that void, if you don't fill that vacuum with labor, some other vice is going to creep in. So Paul calls on every single Christian to get busy. Stop stealing, yes. But equally important is that you start working. Put off the mask of the thief. Put on the overalls of the worker. Let him labor, says Paul. Let him work. Here he says, let him work with his own hands, meaning he can't just send his kids out to do his work. He needs to get off the sofa, into the factory or the office tower or the farm, whatever. The emphasis here is that he does this to provide for himself and his own and to provide his fellow brothers and sisters with help. You read a very similar command. It's all through the New Testament. One more, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. Let him go hungry. If he refuses to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, laziness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And so the motivation here is, you know, provide for your own, but not just that. We're working so that we have something to give. That's the reason, that's the rationale with this command. Look at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so one of your goals as a Christian is to make enough money to care for and feed your own household and to have enough left over to share with those in your relational sphere who are in need. We need each other to do this. I mean, after all, a person can work his whole life and be filthy wealthy, 
but lose it all in an act of war or some kind of government intervention or sickness or some striking providence. But then we're part of a church and all the people that surround us in that moment in our need have this joyful opportunity to do what your own physical body does when part of it is needy. It provides for you. If your stomach is hungry, your mind and your hands and your mouth all cooperate to feed it. And when your ankle is sprained, your other leg hops and your arms swing your crutches to care for that sprained ankle. And what you do intuitively for your own physical body, you must learn to do quickly to the spiritual body to whom you are joined. You may even want to take some time this week and and think, what are my occupational goals? Why am I on the career path I am on? Just getting more money doesn't make anybody generous. In fact, I kind of think that the, it's easier to learn generosity when you have little than when you have much. <laughs> if you can learn it when you're a student to be generous, I think you'll grow into someone who's prosperous and you'll be generous. It can be harder when you have a lot because you have more to lose. So ask yourself, do I view my income, at least part of my income, as a ready fund to help fellow members in need? And do I give that money away with with the same kind of abandon and joy I would if it was the pain of my own physical body that I was alleviating? Get a job, work hard, give lots away. Number four, say encouraging things to people. I am floored by how much people complain, how quick they are to grumble and gripe and blab on and on about what is wrong with the world and everybody in it, and I'm just thinking about me. Our problem is we view our mouths as exhaust pipes rather than ventilators. We think that hole in our face exists for the sole purpose of spewing out opinions and complaints and polluting the atmosphere with everybody else, when in fact God has given us these lips to work like an oxygenating ventilator to those around us who are struggling to get their next breath. Look, if you've got really bad asthma, you know how valuable an inhaler can be at just the right time. When you're suffocating, that ventilin fits the occasion. That's the phrase Paul uses here, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What's the command here? All of your words should strengthen your listeners. All of them. All of your words should come at just the right time with just the right message. Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. People who speak fitting words, I would argue, are good listeners. They're more interested in other people than themselves. When's the last time you asked somebody a meaningful question? And by meaningful question, I don't mean, hey, did you want to ask me how I'm doing? Good listeners dig in. They pay attention. 
And then they hunt around in their own mind because they're reflecting on God's word as they're listening to this person speak. And they're looking for words that are going to build up their brother or their sister to edify, to strengthen, to build up. They listen and they know that person well enough that they can offer up just the right words to help a brother live more like Jesus, just the right words to strengthen a sister's confidence in Jesus. Are you serving up golden apples on a setting of silver or rotten bananas from your dirty hand? Think about this. What are your words doing? What are your typed words doing? Are they serving you? Are they serving others? Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Say encouraging words to people. Give grace. Build up. Strengthen. Have words that fit the occasion. Number five, extend relational credit to other people. Look, we're broken. We admit that as Christians, and we live in a broken world. My neighbor, just a couple doors down from me, purchased a broken boat, and I've been enjoying watching him restore this old wooden boat. I went to look at it this week, and as I'm looking at it, I could have pointed out all the little flaws and faults, but I wasn't there to do that. I was there to admire how good it looked now compared to when he got it. I think that's a good way to look at people, too. Extend relational credit. Consider how much they have grown between now and when the Lord saved them. Consider how much they're going to grow in the rest of their life. Consider what they're going to be like when they see Jesus. Then believe in them. Have hope in them. Strengthen them. This is verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Can you imagine what it would be like if God only partly forgave you? If he regularly brought up to you all the ways you failed when you were 17, if he thundered back from heaven a a sarcastic laugh every time you prayed? Look, how deep was the offense of your sins to God? I'll tell you, it was infinitely deep. How many of your sins did God forgive? All of them. All that you have committed, all that you committed today, all that you will commit. What is God like? Does he hold those sins against you now? Does he, does he bring up your past failures all the time? Does he let you know that he expects you'll never change, you'll never amount to much? Does he mock you in front of his angels? Does he get annoyed when you ask for help? Of course, the answer to all of these questions is a resounding no. Well, sister, do you hold your husband's sins against him when he genuinely asks for your forgiveness? Brother, do you bring up all your wife's past failures every time you have some dispute? 
Single friend, do you make sure that everybody in your house knows that so-and-so is never going to amount to much? Young member, do you mock the older church member in front of others? Friend, do you get exasperated when your, when your Christian friend comes and asks for your help again? If you answered yes to any of these, then you aren't living the way a Christian must. The new you, the real Christian you, is to live in a state of always extending relational credit to the people that we know. No Christian should be known as contentious. Not a single one should be known as contentious. Look at what he says. Be kind. You know what the word means? Pleasant, gracious, good. Be kind to one another. Aren't you thankful God is kind to you? I am. So be like God. Be tender-hearted. What does that word mean? Compassionate, warm, benevolent. Aren't you glad that God is tender-hearted? I am. So be like God. Be forgiving. Always in this posture of readiness to, to cancel the debt of offense against you by another when they ask for it. Aren't you thankful God is like that? I am. So be like God. This is the messaging of the New Testament. It's the messaging of the whole Bible. If people think of you as a cranky, complaining, contentious, hold a grudge, quick to judge others, out to settle the score kind of person, friend, you are not living like a Christian. That is not your personality. It's not your upbringing. It's your sin, and you need to stop, and you need to replace it with being kind, tenderhearted, and quick to forgive. Live like someone who has been told to mimic God. Forgive just as God in Christ forgave you. In other words, friends, extend tons of relational credit to others. Number six, give up your life in love. Just briefly, Ephesians 5, verse 1. We've seen it already. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We've been trying to frame this whole section as walking in love, but I don't, I don't want you just to miss the simple command to love. Love every day. Love, love all day. Love until the great day. Make it so that everybody you meet walks away thinking, man, I think that guy actually loves me. Not in a creepy way, just in a normal kind of Christian great way. Be known for your self-denial instead of your self-indulgence. Friends, it's just worth saying again, this is not impossible. I fear that sometimes Christians read these commands and somewhere in their hearts they think, well, that's not really possible. And when you have that thought, you should just turn to whatever side and say, shut up, Satan. Stop. Not only is it possible, it's required. You've got to stop lying to yourself. This, this Telling yourself it's not possible is self-deception. It's a way to try and excuse your sins. Look, you swore allegiance to a new king, and he demands a certain way of living, and he always gives the grace to fulfill his commands. Maybe you just haven't tried. So the next time you're tempted toward anger, remember that verse. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and say, Lord, that seems impossible to me, but I'm calling out for your help. Do you think God will be slow to answer that prayer? I dare say he'd be very quick. Look, there are times when self-denial hurts. And telling the truth is wildly uncomfortable. And working so that you can provide for other people is exhausting. And, 
replying with grace to somebody who's saying awful things to your face is really, really hard. And where turning off your anger makes it feel like you lose. To which I say, did you think discipleship would be easy? Did not Jesus say something about taking up your cross and following him? If you're not fighting off sins every day and working hard to become the new you over the months and years, you're not living the Christian life. I don't know what you're doing, but you're not living the Christian life. Look, I've been just trying to press this this one question on your conscience for weeks now. Are you going to follow Jesus or not? He's going to give you all the grace you need to fulfill his commands. It's true. We're saved through no effort of our own, but we are saved to use all our effort to obey the good works which he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So love your brothers and sisters. When you fail at that, repent and tell them so and ask them for their forgiveness. Lastly, number seven, express your gratitude. Verse four, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. I think this might help you the most. Gratitude, expressing gratitude. Paul says, stop your sexual joking and innuendo, start spiritual gratitude. Let me ask you, did you thank God for your food this week? Did you thank him for your life? Did you thank him for the weather, the air that you've been breathing, every beat of your heart, which you don't really have much to do with, every smile you got out of that toddler? Did you thank him for the spouse that he provided, your adult child? Did you thank him for your car, your money, your time, your clothes, your job, your relatives, your neighbors, your ability to read? The list is endless. There is so much for which we we ought to thank the Lord. And I'm not asking you if you felt thankful. That's not what the verse says. It says, give thanks. There's a difference. If you fill up your mouth with words of gratitude, there's going to be no room for words of filthiness. You stop the crude jokes. Yeah, but replace those bad words with actual words of thanksgiving. What would your house, your household be like if Everybody thanked God for 10 things every day. You sit down for dinner and say, all right, everybody, come up with 10 things you want to thank God for. What would your workplace be like if you verbally thanked your coworkers for their good work? How much your, what would your neighborhood evangelism be like if in front of your neighbors you regularly thanked God for his provision in your life? Let's be thankful people. Brothers and sisters, Now you've got the Grace Fellowship Church uniform. This is the Christian uniform. Speak the truth to people. Deal quickly with relational tensions. Get a job. Work hard in order that you might give. Say encouraging things to people. Extend relational credit to others. Give up your life and love and express your gratitude. Say your words of thanks. And these are not things to consider. They are things for us to do. If you're a Christian... No matter where you live, who your parents were, or what you do for a living, these are the behaviors that should adorn your whole life. And they should be so prominent that when you bump into some stranger who's a Christian, after a few minutes he's thinking, I think this guy loves Jesus too, because we're wearing the same uniform, right? May God make it so. Please stand as you're able. Let's sing, There is a Fountain.